Welcome back to the Low Bottom High Rise podcast with me, Moira Cassaba, and I am beyond, beyond honored to have Ryan Hampton as my guest today. Ryan's an advocate, speaker, author, media commentator who has quite literally dedicated his entire life to solving and bringing solutions to our addiction and drug overdose crisis that's happening in this country. It is the largest and most important conversation that we have had on the podcast to date. Um, Guys, one in three, one in three American households are affected by addiction and Ryan is doing everything he can to change this. He is somebody I admire so much who uses his personal recovery journey as testimony to share with others. But what I love most about Ryan is he truly gives action steps that anybody can do, anybody can help to end this crisis. We're going to delve deep into why addiction has escalated so tremendously among our youth, among our country. It is out of control and was super eye-opening even for me. Somebody, you know, I am in the recovery world. I am, you know, I work in the recovery world. I do a lot. And so much of this conversation blew my mind, blew my mind. And the biggest thing that I want to bring to light is the stigma that is attached still to addiction. You know, we lack so much awareness, so much advocacy, and things need to change, need to change. And Ryan, he travels coast to coast to bring solutions, awareness to the issue. And we are so fortunate to have him on the show today to share his insights, his experience with us. So sit back, relax and get ready guys for an eye-opening conversation that I hope will inspire you to take action. I am beyond honored, like seriously, to have you here tonight. Um, You're somebody I admire so much. We were just chatting before. I mean, just the work that you're doing in the world in regards to addiction and recovery. And uh, it's it's overwhelming. Like, I don't know how you're doing all that you're doing, but you are a catalyst for change for sure. And what I would love for you to say first and share first is, who is Ryan Hampton? What in the world are you doing? What have you done? Kind of what led you to this spot in your life? Wow. Okay. So yeah. we need like a whole like, <laughs> right? like series of, of podcasts just to yes. answer that question. Um, it's so good to be here. So great to be joining um, the, this podcast. And, you know, I, I wake up every day and ask myself who Ryan Hampton is mm. almost on a daily basis. Um, yeah. You know, I think it's important to remind myself that, you know, not only am I someone who's in recovery from a you know, a pretty um, devastating substance use disorder addiction uh, issue that went on for over a decade. Um, My recovery date's February 2nd, 2015. But, you know, equally as important to me, you know, I'm a, I'm a fiance, I'm getting married in March. I'm a a son. um, I'm a brother. I'm an author. uh, I'm a community activist. You know, I'm someone who who is very passionate about people in recovery and those who are seeking recovery, you know, but I, um, you know, it's always an interesting time of year for me, like coming up towards, you know, the end of one year and the beginning of another, because it was like right around that same time for me that I was 
homeless. I mean, I, I essentially yeah. started this journey homeless um, uh, at the end of 2014. Um, you know, I didn't have anything to my name and um, I was desperately searching for help. And I can remember, you know, getting into treatment on Thanksgiving day, 2014, and starting that journey, I didn't stay sober while I was in treatment. Um, I had a very interesting treatment episode, mm. um, but I can remember getting out of treatment on February 2nd, 2015, which is the day I hold on to as my recovery date and, and not thinking like, Hey, I want to do all these things. You know, yeah. I want to go out and I want to talk about sobriety. I want to talk about my recovery. I want to talk about my story, it was actually, I want to write a book, two books, three books. I'm now into my third book now. And it's like, crazy. I mean, like none of that was even a desire of mine. Um, I quite to the contrary, wanted to forget about that entire yeah. chapter of my life. Totally get that. Um, and so did my family, you yes. know, and, and, and those who were closest to me. I, my plan was to move into a sober living you know, try and find a job somewhere that would hire me given my history, um, just move forward with my life, never talk about my experience um, of overdoses and homelessness and not talk about my recovery, just like get on, you know, yeah. uh, pull myself up by the bootstraps and yeah. hit the reset button and move forward. Um, and, you know, as, as, complicated as my story was in finding treatment and, you know, my experience on the streets um, and, and, and just complex that it was, you know, it wasn't that story that led me to actually get vocal. Um, it wasn't that, it wasn't my story that led me to, you know, a desire to, to do more or to do something, you know, um, that actually happened about a year into my recovery. Um, when people really close to me, roommates of mine, um, started dying, you know, yeah. and they were being turned away for, from hospital rooms. Um, when they were asking for help, they were being kicked to the curb out of sober livings, you know, with mm -hmm. nowhere to go. They were being denied, uh, access into treatment facilities because they didn't have the best insurance, you know, the PPO insurance that the yeah. treatment facility required. And that led me to like an extraordinary amount of anger and pain. Yeah. Um, and that, that was kind of the moment that I decided I needed to do more, you know, yeah. um, it was after my friend Nick died actually, um, that I said, Hey, I, I have to do something. I don't know what the something is, but I've got to do yeah. something. And it was a, a ton of, a lot of small decision and like inflection points, right? It wasn't like one big decision or point in my life where I said, I want to do all these things. It was, you know, it started out with sharing my story and then it went to writing about my story in an op-ed and then it, you know, moved to getting other people to share their stories and then talking more publicly in my, you know, small little recovery, you know, area of Pasadena, California, where I was living at the time. Uh, about what was going on and then getting more involved in community organizing and politically and then the first book and you know uh, starting the voices project I mean it was just a, a lot of small things that have added up to what we're doing today you know yeah. um, it wasn't just like one moment it was right. a of moments
Isn't that neat though, that we are so motivated to do, it's kind of like for others more than we are for ourselves. You know, it's like, I think when we first get sober, we're like the shame. And I I always say like, I felt like I had a scarlet letter, you know? Um, And I got sober in Southern California where it was kind of cool to be sober because there's so many people that are not sober and there's so many people that are sober. The recovery world out there is kind of so out loud. And I moved to South Carolina when I was a few years sober and I like went underground with it, you know, because you don't talk about that here. And it's still very much that way here, which is crazy to me. Um, But I totally get, you know, the catalyst for change and the, and the catalyst to take action comes so often when we have these stories that are just near and dear to us that we see, and that is, you know, such a motivator for us. Um, can I well, ask you, you, said, you said two things I want to follow up on. Yeah. That. So like, yeah. Um, yes. In terms of like Southern California um, and it, it's been, you know, cause I get to travel all around the country and, and, and do this work. And, you know, there's like 1200 12 step meetings, 1300 12 step meetings a week. Yes. I remember getting sober when I was 21 years old and somebody said there's 600 meetings a week back then. I was like, what? Like I couldn't even wrap. Yeah, it's crazy. There's so many, but there's also like this culture I found in Southern California because that's where my advocacy started. And I can remember like going to some meetings and like meeting people after the meetings, before the meetings and like talking about, Hey, we need to do more. And they're like, what are you crazy? They're like, just show up to a meeting and like, everything's going to be fine. And I'm like, no, 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 no. For like millions of Americans, that isn't the truth. Right. Like, you know, there's a lot more we can be doing. So I found that while it has a a really good recovery community in terms of personal recovery, like the advocacy community is really lacking in some of these Mm. places that are so ingrained in just personal recovery supports, like 12 step meetings, 12 steps saved my life. I'm a 12 stepper. Yeah. Um, The second thing you said though, that I think you could do a whole episode on in itself too, is really, we do have a tendency to take care of others before we take care Mm. of ourselves. For sure. And I have been um, totally guilty of that, uh, very heavy, just in the last couple of years. And that leads to extreme and extraordinary burnout. And, you know, like, you can't do this work on a sustained basis and not be able to put yourself first and take care of yourself. Like, I have seen that, like, self-care, the need for self-care is even more, uh, important, you know, yeah. for those of us who do this work than, than many others. And I have actually lost people who I love and who I'm very, was very close to, uh, as a result of them driving themselves into the ground because they're constantly saving other people without looking, you know, towards themselves. So like we all who do this work and do this out loud and in public, I think are at a higher risk of burnout and negative consequences. Uh, if we don't, really put the brakes on and and time for ourselves. It is so important. So important. So let me ask you a question there. Do you think that's an addict thing? Because what you're, the people you're talking about that are doing this work are mainly recovering addicts and alcoholics. And gosh, don't you think that's like an us thing? We just go to the extreme with everything. Oh, well, I, I do think we have a higher tendency to go to the extreme because of how our brain is wired. 
I will tell you though, I see the same types of behaviors in people who are not addicted or don't have, you know, addictive tendencies. Like they, they, they're helpers, they're healers, right. they're savers. Yeah. Yes. The difference between them though and us is that our kind of end point, you know, could be death very right. quickly, right? Absolutely. Because of because of what we're dealing with. And also because of like most of us have some sort of like underlying trauma, you yeah. know, that drives us to be that way. Yeah. And if we're not treating ourselves or taking care of ourselves, like, you know, make there, there should be no mistake about it. Like I could end up back on the bottle on heroin. I mean, like I, I yeah. know the consequences. So it's like, it's like the consequences are a little yeah. bit more extreme for us than like right. the movies. Just um, a little. <laughs> yeah. Just a little. Yeah. Just, just I mean, a little. Yeah. 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 Um, let me ask you, can I ask you about like, obviously your story and your sure. drug of choice and everything that happened with you? I mean, I feel like I was so, I, I, I can guarantee you a hundred percent that if I fell into addiction at this point in time, we wouldn't be here in this call together. You know, the, the drugs that are out there and, and that's something I want to dig into. You said like coming into this from like a ground floor level before we got started, just giving some of your story, but also a glimpse into the reality check of like, what is out there right now? What is really going on in our country? Because I also have, you know, a 12 and a 14 year old. And so I'm in those circles and I feel like even as a recovering addict, I can be in denial of what's going on. So I really want you to shed some light on that. Yeah. I mean, I'll start with my story first. So I, you know, was someone who was never really tagged to be a heroin addict growing up, mm -hmm. you know, um, I came from a family that had, you know, problems like many families. My father was in federal prison for several years while I was a teenager. We kind of lost everything as a family, uh, when I was in, um, middle school going into high school. And, um, I always wanted to like do more, be better, show my mom that like, you know, she could be proud of me and, um, you know, show my sisters that, you know, that, that, that I can do something with my life, yeah. given our history as a family unit. And, um, when I went to college, I actually, cause I was always interested in politics and history and whatnot. Um, I took an internship at the white house, which turned into a job, wow. um, afterwards. And I was very young. I was 19 years old when I worked there. And, um, so, you know, my, my star was kind of like rising early on. Yeah. Um, but I also had like this huge secret, right? Like, so I was struggling with my own identity at that time and, um, you know, was, was very closeted and in, in, in denial about being gay. Yeah. And I didn't come out until, you know, 10 years later when I was 29 wow. years old and I was actually in the depths of heroin addiction when I did come out. Um, but I was dealing with this and yeah. dealing with all this trauma that I had unresolved trauma as, as a, as a youngster around sexual abuse that I, um, had encountered with, with a, a close family member. Mm. And, um, so there was like all this perfect storm of stuff yeah. kind of like swirling in me. 
um, when I went off to college and worked at the White House. And yes, like I did good. I was like the best White House intern there probably ever was <laughs> in class of 1999. And that's why I got the job and, you know, excelled at everything, you know, task given to me, went to work for the Democratic National Committee and like governors and members of Congress and, wow. you know, quickly went up the food chain to, to have a senior level position on the 2004 presidential campaign. And, um, so cool. And in 2003, right before the new year started, when I was working on the campaign, I was living in DC and had a, you know, hiking accident and got prescribed uh, uh, opioids and like fell in love with them overnight. Yeah. Because uh, it wasn't just like solving my pain, my physical pain issues, it was solving my emotional pain issues. And sure. the, the crux of that story for me, and I, I write about it in both American Fix and Unsettled. Um, my second book was that my dad suddenly had passed away mm. and I had to travel back home to Florida um, to be with my mom and closer to home and took a political job down there. And um, this was in um, early 2004 when I, when I moved back home. And if you know anything about like the Purdue Pharma story, which is oh, like yeah. the acres of Oxycontin and the Sacklers and the pill mills, um, South Florida, where I lived in Broward County was like the yeah. epicenter of it. Yeah. And um, I got caught up in those pill mills really bad and yeah. almost lost my life as a result of it. And my journey into like full blown addiction was not protracted. It was within, you know, two years that I was mm. unemployable, you know, you know, evicted from my apartment, you know, no health insurance, you know, within four years had my first bout with homelessness and within seven had graduated to heroin, you wow. know, I was using IV heroin. And, um, you know, I went down that, I'll spare you the nitty gritty details, but I went down that deep, dark spiral of despair, um, like on warp speed. Yeah. And um, eventually had found my way back or found my way out to California um, cause I thought a geographic change. Yep. That's how I ended up there, <laughs> you know, and, um, it, it just got worse, you know, yeah. to a point where I had survived multiple overdoses and because of, you know, public, uh, insurance and Medicaid got into a public treatment facility in 2014 and kind of the rest, as they say, is history, right? Now you, you brought up, um, kind of the, the, the current day landscape. Yeah, because I'm I'm curious because here's where I feel like there's a slight disconnect. I hear your story and I've heard your story in other people's lives. You know, a close friend of mine's whose son got a knee injury playing lacrosse and is prescribed these pills. And, you know, just like you said, warp speed two years later, he dies of a heroin overdose. And I, I think people think, oh, that's just like one story here, one story there. And I think it is so much more prevalent that we we as parents think my son's not going to pick up a needle and shoot heroin. Well, he's probably not going to just go from zero to that, but there can be a very fast, you know, escalation to that. So yeah, can you talk about that? So there can be a fast escalation, but I would say like the landscape has completely changed. Yeah, right? yeah. Um, in in 2022, going into 2023, um, had that story I just told you 
you know, where I was in like 2005, had it been 2022, I probably would have been dead given mm-hmm. where I was going by 2020 or by 2006. I wouldn't yeah. survive a year. And I'll tell you why. So like the, the ground beneath us is literally shaking and shifting daily um, in terms of the drug supply and, and, and what types of drugs uh, people are initiating use with. Um, fentanyl, as you know, which is a synthetic opioid, it's 100 times more powerful um, than morphine has just completely contaminated America's drug supply. Um, It is coming in through uh, illegal ports of entry. It's coming into the United States through also legal ports of entry. It's being brought in by cartels. It's being manufactured also at the same time by rogue chemists here within the United States. Um, so it is here, it is up, it, it is it is, it is, is all over the place in all 50 states. And it's making its way into pretty much everything, right? Yeah. So it's making its way into other drugs. It's making its way into fake pills that look like, uh, you know, Oxycontin or Oxycodone or Xanax or, um, you know, Percocet. Um, and we're starting to see this like devastating heartbreaking, catastrophic phenomenon of kids, you know, 13, 14 years old, um, who are, you know, maybe trying their first pill, you know, and they're getting a fake pill and they're dying. There was a a 14 year old that died at uh, Hollywood uh, High School just a few weeks ago uh, in the bathroom, you know, from a from a fake fentanyl pill, what, what she thought was a Percocet. And so it really needs to, I mean, I mean, this is like the subject of the book I'm working on right, right. Now, my third book. It needs a real deep examination as to like why this is happening. Yeah. Well, that's, I'm it. sitting here. Yeah. Like yeah. why, why the hell is this happening? And, and yeah. you're right. It's so scary. It's not like, you know, drinking too much vodka anymore. And right. I, you know, I used to bring meetings. I still do into recovery centers. And I can remember there was a gap in time actually when my sister passed away from addiction and maybe it was a three year gap. And I was like, I really need my sister then passed away. And I was like, I really need to get back into recovery, you know, centers and be bringing meetings in. And it was like, there was a 180. I was like, I'm used to sitting in here with everybody talking about being a recovering alcoholic. No one is, no one in this room is talking about that anymore. I mean, it, it was terrifying and, and hard to wrap my head around. It is. And I think, you know, the, 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 there is no quick fix to like, how do we solve fentanyl? How do we solve this crisis? Like it is, it is a combination of things that need to be done. Um, it also, you know, I, I believe should kickstart a larger conversation around how do we start to address like a lot of these underlying issues that are causing kids who are 11, 12, 13, 14 years old to be going on to like Snapchat or another platform to like find what they think is an Adderall or a Xanax. Um, You know, I I know like there's this rallying cry of like one pill can kill and absolutely it can, but you know, I think there's a lot of instances where you know, these kids are also searching for some sort of relief that we're not addressing. And we need to understand that, like, we also are in the midst of not just like this overdose crisis, but we're still at like the peak of what I believe is a massive behavioral health and mental health crisis with our youth. 
Yeah. And so there's, there's a couple of things we need to start doing. One is like, you know, broad public awareness around the dangers of fentanyl, what fentanyl looks like, what fake pills look like, and, and to do it with messages that will resonate with our young people, right? Like yeah. we need them to know, you know, what the, the dangers are and how they can mitigate those dangers if they are dead set on using no matter what. Right. Because there are going to be some that, yeah. that will use no matter what. And we need to make sure that we are, you know, you know, providing yeah. some safety to them to make sure they don't die in the process. Yeah. Um, the second thing is, is we have to start building like an infrastructure from the ground up because the one we have completely sucks yes. um, on how we're dealing with these behavioral health and mental health issues uh, with our youth. And we need to, and I, I know I don't want to talk like too much on the 30,000 foot level. I could go there like super quick, <laughs> but you know, like the answer is not like, just say no. The answer is not right. just like public panic and like, you know, um, misinformation coming from, you know, the DEA and others. Like we have to realize this is going to get worse until it gets better. Yeah. And we can't allow fentanyl and this issue to become like this divisive issue, mm. you know, where it's being politicized from right. both sides, That's you ridiculous. know, and, oh. and the mass meat and the media, because they know it's going to get clicks and views and things like right. that. Like, like real people, their lives and their kids' lives are like completely at risk here. Yeah. So, you know, let's, uh, my opinion is like, let, let's ditch like all of kind of like the, the noise around this and let's start getting to solutions because I think solutions do exist, but it's going to require massive investment yeah. in dollars and time and in people getting to tables who may not agree on everything yeah. to find things that they can agree on and work towards those goals. Um, 109,000 people like just last year, 2021 died of a preventable overdose. I can't remember when I got sober in 2015, like the number was 43,000 and they were talking about being a historic high at that point. Right. That number is not going to plateau for some time, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and I think, look, we call it like a public, we call addiction overdose, a public health crisis. Um, but we don't, tr we don't really like, that's just a name only, right? Like right. we have another public health crisis in this country, right? COVID, like we have a playbook. I mean, right. you have FEMA knocking on doors, asking yeah. people, you know, or giving people information on testing and vaccines and all of that. We had a vaccine uh, developed in warp speed. They called right. it Operation Warp Speed within months. Billions of dollars that went to communities, you know, um, community clinics. We had a daily White House press briefing. Right. You know, the death toll hit 50,000. I mean, we know what to do. Like, we have. Right the dollars, we have the scientists, we have the professionals, you know, it's just, it's a really kind of like dirty subject. Right. I was going to say, you know, why do you think that is? Do you think it's just still the stigma of addicts? You know, it's a it, yes. it's bullshit yes. that it's a choice yes. and all of yes. this. It's, it I is, mean, it it's stigma is just like another kind word for like discrimination, prejudice. Yeah bias like like those yes. things are real like it, you know it's a lot easier to like put it on the person who's using than to say hey you know maybe the government should look at itself right. maybe like the public health system should look at itself and say we have failed people 
you know, yeah. um, which they have. Maybe yeah. the behavioral health system should look at itself and be like, we have failed America's youth and we need yeah. to do better. It's so much easier for them to be like, you made a bad choice. You're a right. bad parent. Drugs are bad. Fentanyl right. is here and it's going to kill you. Like, it's like, no, at some point, like all of this, the, the healthcare system and the government needs to kind of like look in the mirror and be like, how have we been dealing with this? We've been dealing with one form or another of an opioid crisis for like 50 years. Yeah. And only it's worse, you know? It's insane to me. It's insane. The I mean, and I... Ugh. It's, it's, it's hard to wrap your head around when you think about your own children, you think about your own life. Like you said, you and I wouldn't be here if we were, you know, out there in this year, you know, there's, Ooh. there's, there's no chance in hell. And so what I want to ask is because I also, you know, you did this amazing, um, addiction across America and, you know, went to some of the hardest hit cities and I'm over here like, can you come to Charleston? I know we might not have the numbers, you know, fortunately and unfortunately, but then there there are all of those places that aren't necessarily on the map, but are on the map. So right. what can what can people do? What can parents do? What can people in recovery do? Because you have an army of people in recovery that, you know, go all out for things. And I think that is such a... I hate to say market, but like a market to be educated more on just because think about all the people too, that got sober. I mean, you didn't get, how long have you been sober now? Almost eight years, almost eight years. That's amazing. So we have this army of people that I think are oblivious that are in recovery that maybe got sober five, 10, 15, 20, 40 years ago that are really ignorant of the topic right now that is, you know, facing our country and, if they just knew more, they could do more. So what is it that people can do? So I would tell people first and foremost, like check us out, right? Go to yeah. recoveryvoices.com, go to mobilizerecovery.org, check out what we're doing. They're both nonprofits. Um, you know, it's, it's a multi-step process. The first is like if you're impacted by addiction, if you're impacted by overdose, if you're in recovery, if you love someone who's in recovery, if you've lost someone, you know, who you care about, if, if, you know, um, you, you, you're an ally of this, of this issue of this cause, you know, if you are so privileged to be able to do so, um, tell your story because telling your story is a privilege. Like there's still people who can't tell their story, who can't right. be open about their experience with this issue uh, because they can still lose their job. If they're criminal yeah. justice involved, they could lose their kids. Like that stuff is still very, very real today. So like yeah. it, it makes it more important for those of us. And again, I call it a privilege. Yeah. You know, we have the privilege of being out loud uh, about our experiences to do it for those who still can't. The second thing I would say is like, once you do that, look us up <laughs> because there's like multi steps to this process. Yeah. Um, I truly believe if you look at the history of social movements in this country, healthcare movements in this country, and I do believe recovery is a social movement. It's one mm -hmm. of the biggest social movements, I think, in, in the history of the world, honestly, Um you know, the numbers are on our side. We don't need every single person who's in recovery or claims recovery as an identity to get loud and yeah. like talk to policymakers. But if we had, 
just a sliver, like 0.0000001% of them um, who are out doing this, we could change the dynamic of the overdose crisis overnight. You know why? And this is like, I don't care if it's red, blue, independent, pink, green, yellow, whatever your party affiliation may be. Um, You know, if, if purple, which is recovery becomes like one of your voting issues, the people who make decisions about us, the people who make decisions yes. about where dollars go for treatment, the people who make decisions about things like recovery community organizations and peer coaches and job training for people in recovery and employment opportunities and sober livings and housing, like they will wake up and start listening to us. Yeah. So it's like register to vote. Talk to your policymakers about this issue. Tell them your experience with it. Tell them you want them to be your representative, your voice in whatever state legislature or Congress or Senate or governor or White House, that they have to make this a priority because that's how change happens, right? Sadly, like we don't get to make the rules in this in our states or in our federal government, but we have elected representatives who do make those rules and priorities for us. And when you look at the numbers, one in three American households impact households that are impacted by addiction, you know, 23 to 25 million Americans who are in long-term recovery in the United States, another 40 million Americans who need help right now, you know, if a sliver of them, right, that's a lot of numbers. If a sliver of them demanded more and weren't just confined to the shadows around this issue, yeah. Overnight, I think we could cut overdose numbers in half. And all of that information is on your website, right? Because yes. I hear that and I'm like, okay, so what do I actually do? <laughs> you know, recovery, recoveryvoices.com. Like it is, I would say, as simple if someone's like ready, like, yes, right now they want to do something, um, share that story. If you've already shared that story, come to us at recoveryvoices.com. Like we're not, it's not a sales pitch. We're not charging anything. We don't like, you know, there's no need to like, you know, become a member or anything like that. Like we, it's just, we have troves and troves of trainings uh, and tactics on how you can do this because for a lot of people, they've never talked to a legislator. They've right. never given open testimony. They've never written a letter to their governor or senator. And it's like, we'll help you with that. You know, yeah, we'll help so kind awesome. of lead you to like what you, where your passion is, because there is a place for everyone. There is yeah. a place for everyone in this work. I love that. God, you're, like I said, I, we started out, you're doing some really good work in this world. I don't know if you can answer this question, but I'm sure you can shed some light on it. Um, again, just coming from the mom perspective, and I know we're talking about two different things, right? We're talking about addiction and we're talking about the underlying mental, you know, health crisis with our teens and preteens. Is there anything that you could give to parents, like, you know, kind of to look for this or to look for that? What would you say in regards to, or first steps, you know, because I mean, I'm navigating this with friends now and it's like, it's insane to me how lost parents are when they know their children are using or how much they kind of want to push it off and just, you know, pawn it off as like, well, that's just, you know, that's what we did as teenagers. And I'm like, like you said, totally different landscape today. So coming from the perspective of maybe a parent, you know, finding out that their child's using something to, you know, a child, a parent of a child that is, you know, in fear of this is really addiction. Where, where are the resources there? Cause they're not easy to find. 
Yeah. So um, the first thing I would say, if you need resources, like, and you're, and you're, you know, you have these questions, check out um, Partnership to End Addiction. Um, it is a family support uh, nonprofit, national nonprofit that does nothing but work with parents on these mm. very complex issues. Um, they're online. I think their website uh, is you just you could Google Partnership to End Addiction. They have a couple okay. of different resources and they've got a, a hotline for parents. Again, free resource to check out. But I would say in terms of a tool to use and and something I wish my mom would have done my dad would have done. And I hear this from a lot of people who have come out on the other side, like we have the most valuable tool and resource you have as a parent is your kitchen table. Mm -hmm. And the most important thing that you can do as a parent um, of someone who is either struggling or you have questions as if they're experimenting or something's going on is to call that question. Do not be afraid to have that discussion yeah. at the dinner table with your child and in a very empathetic, compassionate, and just listening mode way. Like, mm, hey, that's key. And, and even like setting the table, for lack of a better term, of, you know, if, you know, when I have a kid, you know, which will be someday, yeah. um, I'm going to make it very clear from day one like, hey, we can talk about this. Right. Like, if you're using drugs, you can talk to me. I am not yeah. going like, to lock you in a closet for it. If, if I think my kid is smoking pot or is using pills, like I am going to ask them and right. I'm going to, and, and then I'm going to like educate them on the dangers of that and be like, do depending on where we're at in that journey, not be afraid to go out and get them help. Like yeah. and I'm gonna do it in the most non-judgmental way and like non-punishing way that Pun I can. Non-punishing. I punishing think that's key. Punishing is only going to make it worse. I yes. promise you 10 times out of 10 times punishment does not work. Right. It usually has the opposite effect. Yeah. I think that is such good advice because I can speak to that. You know, it was like, if we got caught drinking or doing whatever we, there were consequences and we were punished. And what do you and, do? You go drink more. Right. Right. Yes. You gotta, you gotta like escape the the bad, you know, the punishment. So I think that's so important. And I think it's really important to tell our kids too, like, you know, we can get you help. Like I always, I always think about this with, and I talk to my kids about this, like whether you're, you're starting to tiptoe down a road of an eating disorder or a drinking problem or whatever it is, like, it's going to be so much easier to get you help sooner than later, right. you know? Yeah. And to just tell them that I, I've, you know, I've had even family members at one time or another be like, if, you know, you better not do that. Cause I can't handle it. And I'm like, if you can't handle it, then when is your child ever going to come to you? They're not going to add to your plate. And I felt that very much so because my sister that ended up passing away put so much, it, she just put my parents through hell and she was five years older. So I felt like when I stepped into my own issues, the last thing I would have done was go to my parents because I couldn't burden them with that. So that conversation that you know, whether it's mental struggles, emotional struggles, addiction struggles, it's not, it's, it's not a burden as a parent. Like you want to welcome those conversations, you know? Mm -hmm. Totally. Yeah. 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 Oh, goodness. Well, I might be calling you over the next few years. <laughs> anytime you can reach out anytime. And like anybody uh, who wants to get in touch with me, 
you know, they could check me out. Um, my, 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 my website is ryanhampton.org. I'm at Ryan for recovery on Twitter, you know, reach out. I'm super accessible and, um, yeah, I'm, this has been great. I appreciate yeah. it. Thank you, Ryan, so much. I really appreciate your time, your knowledge. And like I said, I just appreciate you and the work that you're doing and just keep at it because the world needs you. Awesome. Thank you. Goodness gracious, guys, a heavy conversation, but a much, 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 much needed one today on the podcast. Please go to the show notes, take action, do something today. You have the power to do something to change the state of our country, the state of our youth, the state of this world. And it's my hope that you take action. All the information is in the show notes and we will see you next week. Thanks for tuning in.